1: As we move into the month of December, we begin a series, a small series, Look at the Cross. Next on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. <music> Hi, and welcome. This is Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Today, we continue our survey of the book of Luke. We find ourselves looking specifically at Luke 23, verses 26 through 49. Over the course of this week and into next week, we'll take a look at the crucifixion of Jesus, the significance of it, and what it means for you and I today. Please join us. For today's broadcast of Abounding Grace, here's Pastor Gary Wagner.
2: The Crucifixion of Christ, Part 1. Over the next two or three Sundays, we're going to be talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. And as you have seen, and I'm sure you have felt over the past few weeks, Jesus is moving deeper and deeper into agony and anguish and pain. And one of the distinctive features of the Gospel of Luke is the large amount of time and space that he spends recording the suffering and the death of Jesus. And yet, although death by crucifixion was one of the cruelest and most degrading forms of punishment ever conceived by human depravity, Jesus' crucifixion, is recorded with the utmost restraint of depiction. All it says is, they took him to Golgotha and he was crucified. Luke would have never produced the movie, The Passion of the Christ. that spends so much attention and physical suffering on the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke describes Christ's suffering in His crucifixion with great restraint. Why? Not because the physical pain was not important. It was necessary. The physical pain inflicted by man was severe. But the most severe pain that Jesus felt that day was a result of the stroke of justice. That is, what God inflicted upon his soul. The Bible says it pleased the Lord to crush him. And it was God pouring out on Christ's heart and his soul all the consequences of human sin that we might be saved. And that is the focus of the Gospels. As important as the physical pain was, that was not what the focus was on. Now, remember what we learned so far from Luke about the suffering of Jesus and His death. We learned, first of all, that His death was not a tragic accident, but that it was planned from all eternity, and it was the center of God's plan to save sinners. We saw, secondly, that in these trials that Jesus endured from the church and from the state, Two things come to our attention. One, he was always treated as a guilty criminal. But time and again, he was pronounced innocent. So here is an innocent man being treated as a criminal, being punished for something he did not do in fulfillment of Isaiah 53 that says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in order for Jesus to bear the consequences of our sin, beloved, he had to have no sin in his own death. He had to die innocent. And Pilate and the other judges declared him innocent. And it had to be that way so that he could bear our guilt. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 21 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's the reason that the trials are recorded in the Gospels. It is to tell you and me to remind us in this historical event that he who knew no sin was pronounced guilty in our place, that we might be saved from hell throughout all eternity. That means that Jesus' death, as we have seen before, was a satisfaction or propitiation In other words, it satisfied God's justice. It turned away God's wrath from us. He died as a substitute in our place, reconciling us to God and saving us from our sins. I have made the point time and again at the two great emphases that we see in Luke from Gethsemane and Christ's experience on Calvary, that this man is a king to whom all other kings are accountable. This man is a king who is in constant control of all the circumstances that are going on around him. And the second emphasis we see in all the suffering is Christ's willingness to die to save sinners. We see his compassion and his love for we who are sinners. Now let's look at the aspects of the crucifixion of Jesus that Luke records. But let's remind ourselves of some things, first of all. Things that we have all, that have already happened to him. He's already been beaten. He has been abused by Roman soldiers with cats of nine tails. Now, if you didn't know, it takes two soldiers to do such a beating. One soldier standing on one side and another soldier standing on the other side, each having whips of seven strands of leather with pieces of stone and glass and metal tied onto the ends of the leather strands. One man beats the victim and then the next over and over again. And in these types of beatings, whole pieces of flesh are torn off the person's back. You could see muscle and sinew and bone and veins and arteries. And the Bible says, by his stripes, we are healed. But turn with me to Matthew 27. I want us to look at the crown of thorns that we are told uh, he wore. It's highly significant, beloved, that he wore this crown of thorns. Now, Matthew makes much of it. Luke doesn't. Because the Greeks to whom he was writing wouldn't understand the symbolism, but the Jews to whom Matthew was writing certainly would, as you shall see. Matthew 27, verses 28 and 29. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they kneeled down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. So here you have this gruesome game that they're playing with Christ. They are mocking him as some sort of king, and they make a crown for him. The crown is not a little crown made of blackberry vines with small briars on it. This is a crown made of thorns that could sometimes be as long as an inch and very, very hard. They wove a crown out of these thorns and they smashed it down upon the brow of the head of Jesus Christ. The pain was excruciating and he probably bled profusely from his scalp. But God uses this wicked act of sinful men to preach the gospel. The pushing of this crown of thorns into Jesus' head is a picture. Of the gospel. This is God using wicked hands to preach the gospel of salvation. You ask, how do you know, Gary? Well, in the third chapter of Genesis, after Adam and Eve sin and eat the forbidden fruit, rebelling against God and now separated from Him, brings God to pronounce His curses upon them. Now, what is the curse he places upon Adam? He says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it shall grow. So these thorns and thistles, at the very beginning of the human race, were signs of God's severe curse upon the most meaningful aspect of Adam's life. He Was a worker. He was to reflect the image of God by working and creating and producing things from the soil. And now God is saying that soil is under a curse. It will no longer be as responsible, as as responsive as it would have been. You will not find contentment, Adam, in your work and fulfillment apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thorns and thistles are signs of God's curse. And the Old Testament takes up that symbol and it uses it time and time again. In fact, we see this profoundly in Isaiah 7. This is a prophecy of Israel's destruction Notice some of the symbolism that Isaiah uses to emphasize to Israel God's curse upon them because of their failure to be his obedient children. Let's begin reading in verse 21 of Isaiah 7. There is a refrain here that occurs several times. Verse 21. Now it will come about in that day that a man may keep alive a heifer and a pair of sheep, and it will happen that because of the abundance of the milk produced, he will eat curds, for every one that is left within the land will eat curds and honey. And it will come about in that day that every place where there used to be a thousand vines valued at thousands of shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. People will come there with bows and arrows because all the land will be briars and thorns. As for all the hills which used to be cultivated with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns. So you see, all over the land, the symbol of God's curse is briars and thorns. God's devastating curse rested on man and Israel because of its rebellion against God, and now those thorns are on the brow of Jesus. Do you see the powerful symbolism here? God caused the wrath of the wicked to please him. He used their gory action, oppressing that crown of thorns upon Jesus' brow, to preach the gospel. Because Christ... Has taken the curse that we deserve. The curse that rested upon man. The curse that rested upon the earth. The Lord Jesus Christ has come in our place and taken that curse that was upon us and lifted it from us that we might find fulfillment in Him and enjoy the blessings of God in every area of life because we're no longer under that curse. We're no longer under the curse of the briars and the thorns. For Christ bore them for us in a crown that was crushed upon his head. Well, now what else happened before the crucifixion? Barabbas was released. Remember the story we looked at a couple of weeks ago? Barabbas was an insurrectionist. Is a revolutionary, a murderer, a so-called Osama bin Laden of the first century. And Pilate, hoping to get out of crucifying Jesus, was hoping upon hope that the people would choose Barabbas to be put to death over Jesus. And he says, I'll let one of these men go free. Which one do you want me to let go? And of course, as we all know, they chose Barabbas to be set free because they would rather have Jesus be crucified than this terrorist. And remember, that very same Friday on which Jesus was crucified, Judas died. He died a gruesome death. Judas, out of remorse, refusing to repent, regretting betraying Christ, went out and hung himself. In fact, he hung there so long in the hot sun that his body burst and he fell to the ground. Now, what did Barabbas and Judas have in common? Why am I mentioning them both here? They were both, first of all, rejectors of Christ. They had their own reasons, but they both rejected Jesus Christ. Judas rejected Christ for a works salvation. He was an old legalist. He wanted to continue to believe that you earn points with God, and in winning points with God, you would be rewarded materially. Salvation by works. So Judas received Jesus Christ for his own legalistic works salvation. Barabbas rejected Christ For salvation by revolution and insurrection. He wanted to continue his murder and his terrorism against Rome. And as a result, both of these men failed. Neither one of their forms of salvation worked. And as a result, both of them died terrible deaths. Now, You may be out there saying, wait a minute, pastor, we know about Judas' death. But what do you mean Barabbas died a terrible death? After all, Barabbas was released. It looks like this revolutionist was vindicated. Well, I know we're not told anything about Barabbas' future, but let me try and give an educated guess. Use your imagination and remember the history of this time. What probably happened to this fanatic zealot Barabbas? Well, where do you think this revolutionary against Rome ended up? I think it was Masada. Where did all the Jewish zealots end up but Masada, where they eventually committed mass suicide and mass murder, as the Roman soldiers approached? He was the last stronghold of the Jewish insurrectionists against the Roman Empire in 70 A.D. And, if not Masada, then surely with the rest of all the zealots fighting against Rome, he perished when the Roman armies destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Now, of course, this is an educated guess. The Bible says in Proverbs 8 that those who hate me love death. And because Judas rejected Christ for salvation by works, and because Barabbas rejected Jesus for salvation by revolution and insurrection and social change, neither one of them had a future. In the last days of Jesus, Judas, who believed in salvation by works, perished by his own hand. The man who believed in salvation by revolution and social change more than likely perished in the destruction of Jerusalem or Masada, emphasizing to us that both of these forms of salvation are dead-in streets. And the choice before Americans today, whether we think of ourselves as individuals, as families, or as a nation, is the death of Jesus or the deaths of Judas and Barabbas. We either call our nation to repent and believe, and it believes in Christ alone and His death as the only basis for salvation and the end of the consequences for sin and evil, or we choose to die the death of dead-end methods of salvation, symbolized in the lives and the deaths of Judas and Barabbas. Do you remember the day that Judas died? It was the same day of the victorious death of Christ. Judas was the first trophy of the triumphant Christ, the only way to salvation. God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And on that very day, Friday, Christ celebrates His triumphant death in the death of Judas. He is truly a king. And our only hope is to do what Judas and Barabbas did not do, and that is to bow to Christ as king and as Savior. One of the greatest statements I've ever heard in my life on the kingship of Christ and how important it is to believe it, was written in 1887 by a man who taught at Princeton Seminary by the name of A. A. Hodge. Listen. If Christ is really king... Exercising jurisdiction over the state, as surely he does over the church, it follows necessarily that the general denial or neglect of his rightful lordship, any prevalent refusal to obey the Bible, which is the open law book of his kingdom, must be followed by political and social, as well as moral and religious ruin. If professing Christians are unfaithful to the authority of their head in their capacity as citizens of the state, they cannot expect to be blessed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in their capacity as members of the church. The kingdom of Christ is one and cannot be divided in life or in death. If the church languishes the state cannot be in hell. And if the state rebels against its Lord and King, the church cannot enjoy His favor. If the Holy Spirit is withdrawn from the church, He is not present in the state. And if He, the only Lord of life, be absent, then all is impossible, and the elements of society lapse backward to primeval night and the chaos. In the name of your own interest, he says, I plead with you in the name of your treasure houses and barns, of your rich farms and cities, of your accumulations in the past and your hopes for the future. I charge you, you will never be secure if you do not faithfully maintain all the crown rights of Jesus, the King of men and nations. In the name of your children and their inheritance of the precious Christian civilization, you in turn have received from your sires. In the name of the Christian church, I charge you that its sacred franchise, religious liberty, cannot be maintained who in civil matters deny their allegiance to the king in the name of your own soul and its salvation. In the name... Of the adorable victim of that bloody and agonizing sacrifice where you draw all of your hopes of salvation. By Gethsemane and Calvary, I charge you, citizens of the United States, afloat on your wide, wild sea of politics, there is another king, one Jesus And the safety of the state can be secured only in the way of humble and whole sold out loyalty to his person and of obedience to his law.
1: 408-